Bossable podcast is proudly sponsored by Finitech. Finitech is Finland's largest IT contract recruitment agency specialized in connecting the very best IT professionals with the very best companies. The economy is finally on the rise and IT professionals are in high demand. There's hardly a better time to start your own company and become a solo entrepreneur. Yes, the market is that hot. It's not freelancing anymore, it's solo entrepreneurship. As the leading agency, Finitech has a lot of different projects to choose from. Finitech will help you find your next engagement so you can focus on doing what you love and do best. Go to finitech.fi and go solo. You're listening to the Boss of a Podcast, and this is the first episode of the fifth season. I'm your host, Sami Honkonen. Now, you would think that if you know in June that the next episode is going to come out in two months, that you would allocate ample time for making that episode. Yet, here I am, working on the episode at 11 p.m. the previous night. One of the reasons for this late hour is that our company, Tomorrow Labs, has been keeping me pretty busy. If you want to help out, we are hiring. We're looking for an experienced developer with an interest in blockchain technology. If you want to learn more, go to tomorrow.fi slash careers. But now, let's get to the main thing. My guest today is Katri Saarikivi. Katri is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Helsinki. She studies empathy in digital environments. Essentially, she's trying to figure out how we can better express ourselves in digital conversations. Apparently, emojis are just not enough. Hope you like this first episode, and if you do, don't forget to share it. I'm Katri and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. So I investigate how the mind and its functions arise from brain matter. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it sounds cool, doesn't it? <laughs> that is that is a great introduction. How did you end up doing this kind of stuff? Uh by accident. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I'd like to have this beautiful narrative of how I've always wanted to be a scientist <laughs> and especially that the brain has fascinated me. Um, well, people have always fascinated me, which is yeah. why I probably went into psychology. But I remember saying at some point during my psychology studies that I'll never become a scientist. It's too kind of um, precise. It's too boring or lonely. <laughs> and I've also said that, that you know, we had this neuropsych psychology course or neuroscience course that this is it for me, like I'm done with the topic. But then I needed uh, something to work on for my master's thesis, and I responded to an email. <laughs> okay. And my thinking went something like along the lines that, well, this is easy, you know. 
you just measure the brain, you get some numbers, you compare the numbers and you say something about that. But then I got really intrigued by the whole discipline and, uh, and intrigued by the learning that occurs when you do something that you have no idea of to start off with. And I guess that's how it started. <laughs> as, a, as a scientist, how frustrated are you nowadays or with the thinking that any opinion is often considered of similar value than scientific research? Um, I don't know if I'm frustrated. I'm just deeply worried. The solution to this problem or the problems that arise from this situation would come from better interaction between scientists and people who are not scientists. Because if we start to argue about the facts, then we've kind of lost the whole thing. Because if people read scientific publications, they'll find that the results of, of research are often contradictory because science kind of corrects itself. We find something to be true and then we redo the research and it doesn't appear to be so. And then little by little, with small increments, we kind of build the big picture. So it's easy to understand the people reading about these kinds of discoveries will think that, well, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so they don't have the facts. So. Because there's a lot of contradictory science, yeah. like publications. Right. Yes. And like, why would I trust their opinion? Why, why don't I trust my own? But the, the problem is that people kind of lack understanding about how to create reliable knowledge and what the scientific method is and why it has developed into what it is and why we really... We re We rely on this method to create knowledge that is applicable to, to like societies and greater amounts of human beings than just one single individual. <laughs> so I think we need more discussion about how to create reliable knowledge, and why the scientific method provides us with this this method with this way of doing it. So you're studying empathy in digital environments, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Well, we're studying like the basic mechanisms that give rise to empathy. And we're uh, trying to see if we could kind of wake them up during digital interaction. So we're trying to understand the mechanisms better to be able to kind of um, have them function in a better way when people interact online. If we think about the direction where organizations or businesses are going, there's a lot more text-based communication. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more of people working remotely mm -hmm. and A lot of, like, everyone knows that it's a lot harder to communicate uh, yeah. your thoughts and feelings and, and, like, the wholeness of your message mm. through these text-based mediums. And, and are you hoping to, like, bring something new to this that we, mm. could, we could somehow have better discussions where we actually are able to communicate our feelings and emotions together with, with the text? Yeah, that, that would be the first application area, I think. So if it's such a popular tool. Uh, messaging or chatting yep. if we could improve it somehow if we could enable empathy to emerge in those contexts in a better way then it would improve collaboration because there are studies showing that if um, the empathy skills for example of team members uh, predict whether collective intelligence emerges so if empathy becomes inhibited in interaction then it means that we're we're not as effective as we could be in solving problems together okay so you're thinking about thinking about increasing the amount of empathy in digital discussions mm. or discussions that happen over text. Do you have any concrete ideas? Like what would that be like? 
we can measure physiological reactions that tell us something about a person's emotional state. So like uh, heart rate or heart rate variability or uh, skin conductance, or then we can apply these machine vision algorithms that detect emotions from a person's face. If we could kind of perceptualize this information in some way uh, during a chat, would that increase empathy? Would that deepen understanding between the individuals? That's something we've been toying around with. And we even we made this prototype for Slack where we just had this kind of small ball <laughs> or circle that changed color according to the changing emotional state of your um, of the person you're interacting with. And it also moved according to the pulse. So you could see a person's pulse and their emotional state. Reminds me of these rings that you used to have that you could you could put like this mood. <laughs> mood ring. <laughs> Yeah. This might be slightly more accurate than the mood ring. You know, there's some actual science behind, you know, facial recognition. Are you saying that the mood rings are not for real? I'm sorry, Sammy. I'm so sorry. Did I ruin your childhood? You you ruined my like adulthood. That's that's okay. like that's how I know myself. I look at the ring and I know what I feel. Okay. Well, sorry. <laughs> okay, great. So I'll have to pick up the pieces of me after the after the interview, but okay. Uh, anyway, so that's that's interesting. So you've been trying to do like uh, add emotional or mm. uh, emotional data into Slack conversations. Is that something that you you're going to be investing more time into, or probably? Yeah, uh, I'd like to test whether it actually helps deepen understanding between people. And maybe we'll have a chance to do that in a new project where we conduct these types of studies in actual work organizations, like with actual teams. Sure, that would be really interesting to see. Mm. Yeah. Uh, any other ideas on how to like what this how you could actually try to try to improve this? I have this beautiful vision. It's called the synchronizer. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> sounds like a killer robot. But <laughs> I wish it would, would come like in the form of a, a, a cannon or a gun or something. <laughs> but okay, well, the the thinking behind it is that if if we know that the oscillatory activity of the brain sort of synchronizes when we interact, and currently we're investigating whether it matters, like whether it's important for empathy or understanding that our brains synchronize. If it is so, then we could try to make that happen. Uh, for example, let's say we're uh, chatting on on Facebook or something. We could put the synchronizer on before we chat, and then things would just go more smoothly because our brains would be in sync. <laughs> so that's my that's my kind of um, one idea. Because we also know that we can entrain the brain's oscillatory activity with sound or visual stimuli. So you can actually change uh, the the brain's. What would we? Like beat. is it beat the, <laughs> yeah. the brain's beat? So so like what you're saying is technically they're like we have all the capabilities for doing that. Yeah, yeah. But I just want to kind of uh, for, I first would like to know whether you know this interbrain synchronization is relevant, whether it does does or does not occur during online interaction, and whether we could encourage it with these types of stimuli. You're talking about uh, empathy. In interaction. So does that mean that your definition of empathy means, means that empathy always happens in interaction with mm. another person? So, I mean, is that part of the definition of empathy that there has to be like at least two people mm. in the room? What I'm kind of asking yeah. is like if 
if a tree falls down in the forest, <laughs> oh, do the other trees feel empathy <laughs> or, or something? Um, how to answer? <laughs> okay. Um, I think right now there is a shift in neuroscience towards more of the interactive perspective. So quite typically, we've tried to explain uh, individuals' cognitive functions by measuring a single person's brain. And we've thought that if we know where where things occur or what kinds of net networks are active when a person does something, then we can explain their behavior or their thinking comprehensively. But now um, there's a trend towards um, towards the view that in order to explain what a person is or what the mind is, we need to also view what happens in interaction. So I think both are true <laughs> to be really irritating. Yeah. <laughs> of course, there's... Uh, a thing we can call our, our our individual mind. And you have a, a subjective kind of experience of the world that no one else can share, right? You have your own mind. But um, who you are, what you're like, what your capabilities are, are, are constantly defined in interaction. You're not smart on your own. You're not intelligent on your own. You're intelligent if it if uh, if it becomes apparent in interaction. Or your intelligence is valuable if it becomes apparent in interaction. Why do you feel that understanding empathy or increasing empathy in organizations would be important? Well, there's this sort of kind of customer-focused or human-centric trend going on, which is very good. So I think that because of increased competition, organizations are realizing that they need to understand their customers in a better way. So that's kind of the first reason you should be interested in empathy because it's it's the tool we can use to understand people. <laughs> and in general, I think that all work originates from human beings. Work is solving problems that come from other human beings so or responding to the needs of human beings. So the better our capabilities of understanding the person who generates work, the better the quality of the work we do. Yeah, and I, I think what's also another shift, like you said, there's a shift towards like being being more responsive to customers and, and, and understanding the needs of the customer better. And I think another aspect of the same thing is that research has figured out that like human beings are not rational. They're not, they don't mm -hmm. do their decisions only based on reason. It's actually pretty much the opposite, that they actually do most of the decisions based on feelings based on emotions mm. so or that you can't really um, separate the two <laughs> exactly exactly so as a result of that you can say that by understanding emotions better you'll sell more well yeah that's a kind of blunt way to put it <laughs> if you can understand your customer in a comprehensive way which includes emotions uh, then you can sell better you can respond to their needs in a more precise way sure so that's one of the reasons, definitely. So you can <laughs> you can sell more. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess another aspect of that is the the work environment that we can create. Mm -hmm. Any any thoughts on that? What why would we want empathy in the working interactions that we have? Mm -hmm. I suppose it's because people are uh, or the problems that we solve at work are becoming increasingly complex which means that we need to distribute the cognitive load of work, which means we need to kind of rely on each other more and uh, do more work in teams and so on. 
And when it comes to teamwork, the quality of interaction is super important. So the better the connection between you and I, the better the outcomes of our work will be. And do you feel that empathy is one of the key skills in creating that kind of like a team? Absolutely. I think empathy is like the the very foundation of any interaction. So if we don't have any understanding of what what another person feels or what they're thinking, if we don't have any like good intentions <laughs> towards them, then I don't think that interaction can be very fruitful. So they're like the very basic skills you need to make interaction work. Or it's been proposed that human beings exist in the first place or that we've thrived as a species because of our ability to collaborate. Yes. And empathy underlies our ability to collaborate. So empathy has been a survival skill. Yes. And I guess actually this is this is really, really uh, fascinating to me is that like it's the collaboration that that's been a distinctive feature of the Homo sapiens species. Mm -hmm. And it's actually not just a collaboration, but being able to collaborate with large groups. Mm -hmm. So the fact that like you don't know all of the people in the same community as you as as you are in and you're still able to uh, cooperate with them, mm -hmm. that that's been distinctive, that collaboration yeah. happened with other species of humans. But the the first thing that like kind of separated the Homo sapiens is that you can actually interact with someone that's like far away and you've never met them and yeah. you're still able to collaborate, mm. which is kind of funny because that's not how it feels like today. <laughs> When right. you look at the discussions <laughs> that we have, it's like, we're not able to do that, but yeah. still compared to other human species, it mm. seems that we were way better. <laughs> Yeah, we've had that skill at least. Yes. <laughs> well, there are, of course, studies showing that... Um, Or actually, actually, one one other aspect of that is that we might be reaching its limits. Mm. Kind of that, like, when Homo sapiens started started to rule the world, the, the still the communities were a lot smaller than, than they are today, of course, mm. with the population at, at billions and billions. Mm. Yeah. yeah, we need to. It's such a tremendous number of people that we need to parcel it into smaller bits yes. and then <laughs> and then we end up losing empathy yeah towards yeah, because, other groups yeah because we see groups of people instead of individuals and it is true that empathy kind of thwarts our thinking towards um our in-group so your friend's emotions are are more contagious than a stranger's or there, there are studies showing that if you perceive someone as a as a fair person then their emotions are more contagious than another person who's not fair towards you <laughs> So empathy is not like a perfect moral guide or anything, but it is the foundation of our cooperative ability. So what are the implications of this when, when we think about work environments? How can we create situations where like, I don't know, like more empathy occurs or more empathy is created? Well, empathy is, it's an inbuilt characteristic of human beings. So the first thing to do if you want more empathy is to kind of take down the obstacles of empathy. And in traditional organizations, these can be things like roles. <laughs> if we see each other through work roles, instead of seeing each other as human beings, then empathy becomes inhibited. Or if we have a lot of competition, that's a very effective way to kind of kill empathy. Um, Or if we have these groupings, if we see people as a representative of a group rather than an individual, that also kind of hinders empathy. If you talk to a project management professional, what they say is like in the beginning of a new project, the most important thing is to define the roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. 
Well, of course, we need structure and we need to know what is expected and what is meaningful activity and what is not. But then if we want to make people work together in an effective way, then kind of taking down unnecessary structures is important in my mind. What we should try to aim for is that you would have the least amount of structure mm. that you can have without slipping into chaos. Right. Because people are really adept at uh, interacting in, in an effective way. We know how to we know how to be smart together if we're given the opportunity. That's, I think that's really fascinating. Uh, or there are these studies on, on collective intelligence, like what kind of char- characteristics in interaction allow for collective intelligence to emerge. And it's really simple things like everyone gets to speak there are no monologues and that people are responsive <laughs> and when you think uh, when you think for example to your typical work day these types of conversations or the conversations that have these characteristics take place like in the coffee room spontaneously between individuals it's not usually the meeting that has these characteristics but it's it's the spontaneous interaction that occurs between individuals so we know how to do this. <laughs> it's just a question of whether we are we are allowed within the structures that are given by the organization. So actually, so one of the things that you talk about a lot, if I've understood correctly, or if I've done my background research properly, <laughs> is that... What have you found online? <laughs> I did I was a lot young, of Googling. I needed the money. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do those searches, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> time out. <laughs> um, so as I was saying, when I did some background research on on you, I guess one of the things that you're saying is that. Like now with artificial intelligence getting more and more traction and a lot of like jobs being lost, possibly potentially due to artificial intelligence, then we kind of have to think about what are the, what are the things that humans are really good at? Mm. And I guess what you're saying is one of the things that we're really good at, uh, that we're superior at is empathy. Yeah. If we're trying to create an artificial intelligence that works just like the human brain, um then i propose it's it's a pretty tough job to make it empathetic in the way that people are empathetic cuz um well in neuroscience we think that empathy is uh, like a collection of mechanisms or skills one of those mechanisms is imagination <laughs> that's really important for like mentalizing or theory of mind or or understanding that other people think and that other people have thoughts and trying to imagine what those thoughts are like. And then there's emotion contagion, uh, which necessitates a subjective experience of emotion. <laughs> so in order for artificial intelligence to be empathetic or have um, precisely similar empathy mechanisms, it would need to um, have an imagination and have feelings, which means it would need to be conscious. So if we if we we would want to completely uh, replace human beings, uh, then we would need conscious artificial intelligence. And if it ever does become conscious, I truly hope that it's sympathetic <laughs> <laughs> and towards human beings. <laughs> yes. 
but that like that argument uh contains the premise that it would need to be conscious and it also and actually the premise is that uh that for empathy to exist we need consciousness mm. and i guess that depends it depends on your definition of empathy but i guess like if you define empathy from a very pragmatic viewpoint you could say that you could have an artificial intelligent intelligence that reads your body language it might have like some biometric mm. uh like sensors attached to you that it can read you it can have data about millions of interactions that it's, it has had with other mm. human beings and as a result it can choose its words and tone of voice and everything to completely match your needs so maybe i'm being kind of nitpicky with my definition of empathy <laughs> that is key i mean how you define it if you define it as something that happens uh in inter- interaction or if it's mm-hmm. something that happens within the brain of course then your definition is that like if the ai doesn't have a brain then it doesn't mm-hmm. have empathy mm-hmm. but if you define it from a very pragmatic viewpoint uh, and define it as the kind of the outcomes of what happened if you were empathetic then mm-hmm. i think that's something that we probably can get to mm-hmm. or get very close to with yeah. artificial intelligence yeah yeah i agree then the question i think is do we want to create such sure. ai <laughs> yeah sure and, and definitely but yet again that's mm-hmm. a completely different question mm-hmm. compared to to this one of whether like what i'm kind of uh kind of um saying here is that what you're saying is empathy is something that artificial intelligence cannot create and i'm not sure mm. i'm like cuz of course depending once again depending on the definition but it might be something that we can we can recreate or at least like can create. simulate an agent that would have these capabilities yeah, yeah. yeah. well and then your question is whether is it the same as a person actually having these capabilities And if we come back to what we were speaking about before, that um, it doesn't matter what kind of capabilities you have as an individual, what matters is how they appear in interaction, then you might be correct in, in that it's it's more important what happens in interaction. Does, it doesn't matter whether I have empathic capabilities um, on my own. <laughs> If they don't become apparent in interaction, then they don't exist. Yep, yep. Hmm. Wow. This has been very philosophical. (laughs) Thank you, Katri, a lot for your time. This was a really interesting discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Katri, you can follow her on Twitter. She's at Katri Saarikivi. If you like this episode, share it on social media and tell all your friends about it. Before we finish, I have a few credits to share. The theme song and the new ad music have both been composed by Yari Arnella from Embreach. Embreach is the band I sing in. Yari composed the theme song originally for the band but it was never released, so it found a new life on this podcast. And I have to say, I really love the theme song. The theme music also received an upgrade for this season. 
There's some additional choirs, percussions, synths, and other stuff that you can find in there if you listen closely. The upgrade was done by Tuomas Nikkinen from Helsinki Sound Factory. He provides boss-level music and sound design for corporate branding and promotion, from electronic beats to that Hollywood trailer sound. Check out HelsinkiSoundFactory.com for examples. You're listening to the Boss of a Podcast, and I'm your host, Sami Hongolen. Talk to you again in two weeks. Bye.